One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, so you guys, I'm officially marking today, Monday, February 13th, as day one of the Mike Flynn Death Watch. Yeah, I think it's going to be a short. Uh, death watch sweet and merciful hopefully <laughs> he's, he's on life support how would we characterize his condition critical critical i critical. did critical condition critical and not stable i was i i, I gotta say he's he's well into hospice care at yeah, this point exactly it's palliative we're making palliative <laughs> we're gonna make him as comfortable as possible our thoughts and prayers are with michael flynn and his three staffers on the nsc at this <laughs> difficult time probate lawyer Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Out Like Flynn edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal, here in the Jungle Studio with my friends Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes. Hi guys. Hey. Tomorrow's off today. She's been felled by illness. Felled. A mysterious illness. A mysterious illness. Almost as mysterious as the object lesson that we're going to talk yeah, about today. Yeah, that is a very mysterious object lesson that you have brought today. I hope this hasn't had anything to do with polonium. That'll be a nice tea. I'm not eating it, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Um, it's actually been a very good week for people on the podcast. We have had Susan did Trump cast. It's like a multimedia week. That's like star territory. Seriously. Can I say, like, I've done, I think, something pretty high profile media. You know, I've been on NewsHour, I've been on CNN, I've been in the New York Times. I have not gotten any level of friends and family. Oh my God, I heard you on right. X. As on the Trump cast, like people yeah, you had me are texting you being so like, what? yes, yeah. both of you sent me messages. Anyway, I had no idea. No, the, Trump, the Trump cast is is uh, you know that is nerd star power. There. there you go. Yeah, and and Jake Weisberg gave out a big shout out to you, Ben. He called you one of his favorite legal journalists. Well, so it's, that was actually lovely to hear. I, I, of course, I, you defrocked. He doesn't. Uh, I am a defrocked journalist, but. You know, Jacob, uh, back when he was a young reporter at uh, the New Republic uh, in probably 1989 or 1990, and I was an undergraduate at Oberlin, he uh, came out to do a story on the student uh, campus environment at Oberlin and how awful it was. Uh, and I was sort of his principal contact for that story. And so he, he actually played a not trivial role in kind of getting me interested in in kind of coming to Washington and doing journalism and so it's actually was was lovely and and lovely to hear that he uh likes the work that we're doing at lawfare so nice and uh, not to be outdone you were on this american life i yeah that was that was fun that's big that that was fun like an actual public radio podcasting land that's pretty big and but then the weirdest one is that you know, I woke up Friday morning, and the president had, was tweeting favorably, if completely inaccurately, about stuff that had been on Lawfare, and you know, so it's yeah, it's been a very weird media week. Has been. Right. Yeah, we woke up on Friday morning to a text from one Quinta Jurassic that wrote, "You guys dot dot dot" with a <laughs> screenshot of the Trump tweet. Yes. <laughs> I think and I retweeted. began a busy day. I think I retweeted the president's tweet with "might want to read the rest of this post." Yeah, I think a lot, you know, a lot of people raised that issue, um, and you know, 
it is a sign, as I wrote that night, of the total dysfunction of the White House that somehow the president was not stopped from tweeting favorably an, about an article that calls his motivations invidious and his actions incompetently malevolent. TLDR. <laughs> All right. This week on the podcast, Michael Flynn's phone calls and new revelations from the Steele dossier raise questions about Russian influence. Uh, as if we didn't have a lot of them already. An appeals court puts the brakes on Donald Trump's immigrant and refugee ban. Plus, we're going to do listener questions in our third segment today. Um, let's jump in with the news. Uh, there's so much news about Mike Flynn. Uh, came la last week came revelations that uh, first reported in the Washington Post that Mike Flynn and the Russian ambassador prior to the inauguration had, in fact, discussed sanctions during their phone conversation on December 29th, which had been previously reported, I think. I read that in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so now we know that they did, in fact, discuss sanctions. Mike Flynn apparently did not tell the truth about that or conveniently forgot about it when he told multiple White House officials, including the vice president, that they, in fact, had not discussed sanctions and then said Death people went watch. out <laughs> and said they didn't discuss sanctions. <laughs> we can talk about whether it matters that they discussed sanctions. But uh, following on that, there were uh, multiple reports out last night. We had a piece. It's in the front page of the journal this morning saying that the White House is currently weighing whether to get rid of Flynn. Uh, David Petraeus and General Kellogg are two people who are being rumored to maybe replace him. There are various pro-con camps with this. Um, let's sort of unpack and we'll get to the Steele dossier stuff in a bit. But Let's take for just for, for present purposes, you know, does it matter or not whether or not Mike Flynn discussed sanctions or does it matter whether or not Mike Flynn can be trusted to tell the truth to the people he works with? And which of these two things, you know, there's a political problem for him in the White House. There's a broader public perception problem if he's making promises to the Russians about sanctions. But yes, well, all of it. it, it, it <laughs> Let's diagnose the multiple it, it illnesses matters, afflicting the patient. It matters if he was conducting an independent foreign policy at a time when, um, when you know, we have a president and getting on the phone with an adversary nation and suggesting, well, maybe don't don't respond to the actions of this president because you know the cavalry is on the way. Does that matter as a legal issue? Or a no, it's not. I, I mean, I, I suppose ultimately there's some kind of a Logan Act question, but I, but I don't think, I don't think you would have, uh, I don't, I, I doubt very much that that would be, you know, any kind of legal problem. It's a huge uh, impropriety and lying about it to the vice president, uh, you know, compounds it with, a very deep uh, additional problem. And having any time you misrepresent something to a senior official and they go out on national television and put their neck out for you based on rep representations that you've made, you better be telling the truth. And, and it doesn't help when a couple weeks later, you just kind of seem to not be able to remember whether you talked about sanctions, you know, I actually every time I've ever talked to an ambassador about link, about lifting sanctions on the United States, I remember those conversations. And I, um, there've been so many things we've discussed. Journal them. Yeah, I mean, like it's. I think it's important to sort of take a step back and and like a little bit chart the story because you know I do think there's a point here about um, some good reporting and some not so good reporting that has a little bit contributed to the state of affairs. Um, so. Early in uh, in January, uh, I think David Ignatius first sort of broke the story of, hey, um, Flynn had a series 
series of uh, reportedly five phone calls that were sort of in the period between um, uh, when when uh, the Obama administration informed uh, the Russian embassy that they were going to be making this announcement and when the announcement was was ultimately made, um, or potentially between the period of time before the, uh, Russia decided to not retaliate. Um, so that was sort of the uh, original story. It just kind of sat there as, hey, <clears throat> this is a really weird thing. Um, there wasn't much additional reporting. Then uh, a few weeks later, um, uh, one intrepid, excellent reporter at the Wall Street Journal, uh, who shall remain nameless, but is Shane, um, reported that uh, that there was an investigation or like these calls were actually the subject of an investigation. Um, because the mere fact that he had had phone calls with uh, with the Russian ambassador, you know, it's not that uh, it's a little bit strange. It's not that unusual that an incoming national security advisor would have contacts with foreign officials. <clears throat> so um, uh, Shane's story in the Wall Street Journal sort of set off uh, uh, a lot of different reporting. Um, so uh, CBS and CNN and, and other sort of um, uh, news sources were uh, you know, confirming the story and actually adding some additional pieces, right? So saying, no, there is an ongoing investigation and um, potentially there are intercepted phone calls. Then the Washington Post, um, sort of in kind of a 24-hour period, um, came out with this really kind of cold water story of, no, 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 uh, you know, yes, there were phone calls, but he's been entirely cleared and he was never part of this investigation. And that kind of killed the killed the momentum of the story. It was sort of all of a sudden, um, even though there was later reports, it was sort of six news organizations against one. You know, that Post story kind of, that, that was the end of it because they now had something to sort of wave and say, hey, you know, this thing is totally uh, to bed. You know, fast forward a few weeks, um, and the very same reporters that had reported that initial, uh, uh, you know, this is all a bunch of nothing story, have now reported the bombshell of, no, there were sanctioned calls, and there is an ongoing investigation, and, and this is a really big deal. You know, that's uh, that's really problematic. And, and frankly, the later story wasn't reported acknowledging that they were essentially retracting a former uh, an earlier story. And so there's been some confusion here that that is has not been entirely necessary. Um, and I think a little bit speaks to just the uh, the chaos of what's going on. Well, and it also speaks to the strategic way in which people are leaking this information out. Yeah. And it also speaks to uh the fact that the total amount of information available is small and right. so which which pieces come out matter enormously to the way the entire story is perceived. Right. But I sort of think there are four – getting to the substance of Ben and Shane's point, I, I think there are sort of – there are four strains here. Um, so one is, uh, is, is there a Logan Act violation? Uh, on the face of the statute, maybe Logan Act hasn't been there hasn't even been an indictment since 1803. Yeah, I don't or, think it's, it's possible seven, to yeah, violate the Logan Act anymore. Uh, there's like a, there's a question if it's even enforceable under the for, the First Amendment. It's it's just it's it's a law kind of in name only, um, and that's so no. Uh, there's not a Logan Act investigation. And there's not really a Logan Act violation in the sense that it's a criminal violation. That said, you know, the Logan Act does uh, embody this really important set of norms. We've talked about it on the podcast before of, you know, one president at, the, at a time. It also raises really strange questions about how exactly is the United States' strategic interest advanced by taking this position, right? So putting aside all of the weird impropriety and sort of swirling Russia, Russia, Russia stuff, um, 
what exactly was Michael Flynn or, or Trump trying to get at in undercutting uh, uh, the Obama sanctions, right? How, how did that help the U.S.? So that's sort of the second just judgment question. Um, the third is that, you know, is this issue of lying? Um, you know, I think it's pretty clear that Flynn, uh, Flynn lied, right? So on uh, Wednesday of this week, or Wednesday of last week, he told the, the Washington Post, no, you know, no twice. He didn't discuss sanctions. Then Thursday, all of a sudden, well, he couldn't be sure whether or not. I mean, it was kind of, it, it's pretty clear that he's rapidly walking things yeah, back. Yeah, the classic CYA walk back there. Well, <laughs> as you realize that there's a transcript. Right. right. Which, can we just say as a side note? Of course he would know there would be a transcript. The man ran the Defense Intelligence Agency. He didn't know that the Russian ambassador's phone calls are monitored? Right. Okay, sorry. Point <laughs> Yeah, but so I, so Pence is a little bit trying to absolve himself with this like, oh, you know, uh, I was lied to and therefore I have no accountability. You know, uh, your national security advisor, there was a major allegation uh, levied against him. You went on national TV before you assumed office, but then once you came in, these sort of swirling allegations, it like never occurred to Pence to, I don't know, pick up the phone, call the FBI, call the NSA. Well, not that they would have said but but do like I mean he literally is saying he was only he made that comment based on Flynn's representations alone, not even basic due diligence. No, in, so in I running actually disagree with you about that. I think if I think the problem there is that you have an evidently untrustworthy national security advisor and the president is keeping him there. But I think if you have a trustworthy person who warrants your trust and an issue comes up. And you're the vice president. You, you know, Mike Flynn's words should be good enough for you to go on national television. And I don't, wouldn't want them spying on their national security advisor. I want a national security advisor who, when he says I didn't discuss, uh, you know, sanctions with with the Russian ambassador, that means I didn't conduct. Talk about sanctions, and you should be able to rely on the word of your national security advisor. And the problem is not that Mike Pence ended up saying something that isn't true. It's that Michael Flynn's head has not been delivered to him on the proverbial resignation platter the the moment it became clear that he had set the vice president up to lie on national television. Yeah, I think the more – I think that's a fair point. I think the more um, – even more significant than, um, you know, did he talk about sanctions or did he not talk about sanctions and whether or not they should have run that to ground truth is this question of an ongoing investigation. Um, so this has been – you know, people have really focused on, you know, did he – was it sanctions or not? You know, um, we're now two months since the phone calls. We know that the intelligence community has intercepts, um, has transcripts of these, uh, these conversations. Um, and yet uh, we're still hearing reports that this is an ongoing investigation. And that he talked to other Russian officials, too. This is something that gets right. lost in this at some point. And potentially it dates back well before, well into right. the campaign. Right. Right. So there's there's a lot of uh, strangeness here. Just to note, you know, people are talking about like a Logan Act investigation. There's not really any such thing as a Logan Act investigation. It's a counterintelligence So on that point, let me ask this, because this is something that I've wondered. And you, you speak to this as the lawyer here. If he revealed to the Russian government or to Russian sources that sanctions were coming and revealed anything about the content and contour of those sanctions. Like, you know, hey, I just because remember the Trump administration transition team got briefed in the morning of December 29th, about four or four and a half hours reportedly before 
the White House called the Russians to tell them these are the sanctions we're going to hit. Now, people knew sanctions were coming, but if Mike Flynn took information that he got in a briefing and conveyed that information to the Russians, did he violate a law? If it was classified information, right. he violated a law. Whether or not it, it's unclear, you know, whether or not something something would be classified in the morning and then announced publicly, that's that's. But the timing unlikely. becomes really, really important here because December 29th, several things are happening. Trump administration officials are getting briefed, getting the heads up on the on the sanctions. The administration is preparing to call the Russians and tell them what the sanctions are. The administration is preparing to publicly say what the sanctions are, and. In that band of time, Mike Flynn has at least five phone calls with the Russian ambassador. Now, that's a lot of phone calls, (laughs) you know, and I think this is – and from talking to people, you know, particularly former administration officials, what I learned was that it was the sequence of these events and then followed by the fact that the Russians did not respond to those sanctions uh, that – sent up the red flags. That's what made everything stink. So I think without without knowing what precisely he said – uh, and what precisely they discussed. It's very hard to evaluate the question of what, if any, laws may have been violated. We don't know the quality of the information. We don't know uh, We don't know whether he conveyed any information other than, you know, go easy, guys, whatever they do today, you know, we, you know, we're the power coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we don't, and I, I don't really want to speculate about, you know, the nature of phone calls that I really don't know what took place in. Uh, you know, that said, um, what he represented, what Pence represented about him was that there was a call to express condolences for some athletes that were killed um, and a, a plane, plane crash. that crashed, right? It wasn't athletes. It was – And Merry Christmas, the military right. band. Uh, the military band. And, and, and sympathies for the Russian ambassador killed in Turkey. Right. And we should get our bosses together to talk. Right. And that sanctions were not discussed. And now it appears that sanctions were discussed. And the national security advisor should simply never be putting the vice president in the position right. where you do that. By the way, it's of a piece with an executive order that isn't vetted. It's of a piece with the entire dysfunction of the way the National Security Council apparatus is functioning right now. Let's, let's, well, let's quickly take this because we've got to close this segment. But couple this then with the, the report from CNN last week that the intelligence community has verified pieces of the Chris Steele dossier. And we don't know precisely which ones except that they tend to deal with – interactions and meetings among Russian officials. So the intelligence community, who's presumably spying on said Russian officials, looks at what's in the dossier and says, um, yes, this part looks accurate based on our own sourcing. So that tends to, it seems to me, bolster somewhat the credibility of the overall document if Chris Steele has good enough sources to know about conversations going on within the Kremlin uh, and in Moscow that the intelligence community knows about. A, like, quick, let's quickly take that, but then how does that connect back to uh, Flynn and other Trump aides and their Russian connections? So I think there's two things. Um, one, uh, you know, as I said, sort of early as the dossier came out, um, just because one piece of information in it is true, that doesn't mean the rest is true. Just because one piece of information is false, that doesn't mean the rest is false, right? Human collection is, is often a mix of sort of rumors, fact, and fiction, and uh, <clears throat> that's what we're seeing here. Um, clearly, the uh, this kind of verification um, is causing... Uh, 
you know, the intelligence community and potentially the FBI and, and foreign allies to uh, to treat the document as if it potentially has more credibility. Um, and so it's it's significant. Um, it's significant to know that that story has is not going away. In the sense of um, how it sort of connects back to this larger issue, you know, I think that um, it's it's really about the strength of the suspicions here. Um, so, you know, there's this document and maybe it means something, maybe it means nothing. What is it? But it, it's clearly sort of infecting some of the thinking here that there's just this concern of, you know, maybe there's there's like really broad, you know, collaboration or, or criminal conduct, um, you know, that colors a lot. And so um, uh, that this will only add additional momentum. I think that it is connected to sort of the Michael Flynn phone calls in uh, in the sense of, of how seriously and strongly to take that suspicion. Um, so one thing that's notable is, uh, you know, Flynn, uh, yes, he had these phone calls. They decided to investigate them. Um, they don't do that for all kinds of phone calls, right? It means that they think there's something else. And, and maybe it's tied to, you know, these these other uh, related investigations into Trump ties. Um, it got a little bit overlooked. But over the weekend, um, you know, Adam Schiff, who's the uh, vice chairman of the HIPSI, he kind of jangled his keys in front of his uh, inattentive colleagues by saying, you know, we should really investigate this. And we should also investigate if there were any other encrypted communications that took place. Now, He's just saying he's calling for an investigation. Um, but Schiff's a pretty knowledgeable guy. He's part of the Gang of Eight. He's a pretty responsible guy. Um, and so I think it sort of it adds to this general sense of, you know, uh, there's something more than just this. There's something more than just this slice of the dossier. There's something more than just these phone calls. Like something is going on. I think the connection's more direct than that. I mean, honestly, I, I, I mean... So what we know is that the Russians intervened in an effort to affect the outcome of the election. We know that lots and lots of people associated with the Trump campaign had, you know, peculiar ties with Russia uh, and with Russian, uh, you know, sort of foreign policy stuff, including Carter Page, including General Flynn including Paul Manafort. Um, and what we know is that then in the period of the transition, the now national security advisor is on the phone with the Russian ambassador uh, talking about sanctions about which he then does not tell the truth. And the question is, does that lend credibility to the allegations in the dossier, which are now being treated a little more seriously because some aspects of them have been corroborated, the allegations in the dossier of collusion between the campaign and this Russian intelligence operation. And I think without saying that, I, that those allegations are correct or going to be proven true, which I certainly don't know, I think you'd be nuts not to look at this and say, well, I take them at least a little bit more seriously than I did before yeah. the Flynn stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on to our next segment. Uh, Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals <clears throat> puts the brakes on Trump's immigration and refugee ban. Um, I'm going to defer to our, our lawyers and 
eminent legal journalist on this lawyers. one. Right. But I will say that from a political standpoint, interested in covering this as a journalist, um, the question that was most interesting to me is whether the CU in court uh, tweet from Donald Trump on this is they're really going to go to the Supreme Court. At first they said, I guess they weren't. And now it sounds like they are going to go to the Supreme Court, but then they might issue a new executive order. Let's let's unpack first just like what the ruling was and, and what the judges said, and then talk about maybe, uh, you know, where he goes from here. Because I can see like plenty of ways where he would want to keep pushing this and also at the same time, just hit the reset button and issue a new order. Well, the order, uh, the Ninth Circuit's ruling first does exactly one thing, which is it or doesn't do exactly one thing. It declines to uh, grant a stay of the lower court's temporary restraining order on key aspects of the uh, president's executive order on immigration and uh, refugees. Uh, As such, it really just freezes in place the status quo while the issue is litigated in the lower court and then presumably appealed. Um, uh, And in that sense, is not that big a deal. It's become a big deal, first of all, because uh, the president has put a huge amount of weight on it in the way he's talked about it and the sort of uh, and and secondly, because the Ninth Circuit used some language that really seemed to tip its hand as to the way it might think about some of the merits of the question down the road. And it's a 29-page opinion that's unanimous um, and, uh, you know, came out relatively early and I think correctly as being read as something of a shot across the administration's bow, in addition to which – uh, it actually does have the effect of preventing the executive order from going into effect uh, while while we litigate the thing. Yeah, so um, I mean, I I agree with Ben's, you know, that this is this is a very limited sort of decision, and and some of the rhetoric in the Ninth Circuit opinion was kind of flowery and like in a fun dramatic read, but like not all that substantive. I do think there was one additional thing that the court did, which is significant. Um, and that's sort of it, um, showing its hand on on the deference question, right? So they, um, you know, the government had really sort of made the argument of you can, you don't get to decide this issue, right? This is, this is for the executive. And the the court seemed pretty firm on on a question actually that Carrie Cordero had raised on Lawfare uh, pretty uh, you know immediately after the oral arguments and that's um uh, you have to present something. You have to present an affidavit. Yes, the courts traditionally defer to the national security judgments of the executive branch, but that doesn't mean you get, you get to just come in and say, we want to do this because we think we have to do this end of story, right? You, you have to provide some some evidence. And I think because of some of the particular pathologies of this administration, and frankly, because I don't know that there is evidence underlying some of their claims here, um, that does strike me as potentially significant. Um, um, in terms of what they're going to do next, like all things out of this administration, it's, it's chaos, right? One minute they say this, then the next minute this. You know, Trump's um, tweets over the course of the week, which really, you know, went all in on attacking, um, you know, the specific judge in, in Seattle and, and now the Ninth Circuit, you know, that really raised questions about how he views kind of the fundamental legitimacy of the court. Um 
that's part of the reason why uh, this case is so significant, because it appears to be in some sense um, the education of Donald Trump, like that he he doesn't actually understand the roles that the courts play. And we're seeing him sort of realize it and process it in real time and how that's going to shake out, whether or not he's going to follow this sort of obstinate path of you know, screw you guys and it's your fault if something happens or whether or not somebody is going to be able to get his attention and say, no, 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 when the courts say something, we have to abide by it. That's one of the things I think has added this um, additional sense of just drama into yeah. the case. Like he's if he's basically having a real-time civics lesson. Yeah. I mean, he's someone who's never held public office. I'm I would love to know whether he actually understood basic processes for like how a bill becomes a law before he became president. You should is, watch that Schoolhouse Rock. You should clip. watch the Schoolhouse Rock. And you can thing. you can really see I think the the you can really see him going through that eighth grade civic right. process. He's figuring of, this of, out of learning. And he does get courts, by the way. He spends plenty of time in court. Right, but I don't think he's ever gotten separation of powers. Right. right. So he understands that you as a private individual, as a business owner, as a uh, as a person who grabs people by the crotch, you can be sued, right? Um, but I don't think he understands that the president in his official capacity is vulnerable when he behaves in a fashion unconditioned by attention to legal niceties and, and normal processes, that that is something that can tie you up in litigation for years and actually prevent you from doing the things that you want to do. Right. And I think you're watching him learn that and you're watching the tension in him between frustration and anger about that and sort of warring with trying to learn to be a little bit more tactical in his behavior. Right. I, I, I think that's absolutely true in sort of in, in the pure legal sense of how to be tactical and, and how to sort of push policy. Also in the sense of um, whether or not he understands like the basic responsibility. Um, so, you know, not to like – to my own horn, but I put uh, shortly after Trump sort of tweet storm on, you know, uh, blame that judge if something happens in the United States. You know, I, I wrote a quick piece on lawfare saying, hey, journalists, um, you know, what you should really ask. You should go to the U.S. Marshals and ask whether or not they've had to um, issue additional protection to these judges um, because it's really irresponsible whenever the president of the United States starts saying you should blame an individual judge. People are coming, pouring in to kill you and this individual judge. You and, know, and what was the result of that? Uh, uh, the CNN later that week um, uh, confirmed that, yes, the Marshal Service had had to deploy additional uh, security measures to judges on the Ninth Circuit um, uh, and potentially the, the individual judge, although they declined to say sort of who specifically was being protected. You know, th that kind of stuff is really, really significant. And, you know, that, that those sort of stories that there's such chaos right now that those stories don't really haven't really taken hold or sort of gotten any bump. You know, the president in the United States is essentially sicked an angry mob on some federal judges and and the marshal service now has to deal with that and well, how it's, many it's times are going to play out that cycle it's, it's the campaign rally all over again exactly it's you know knock the crap out of him will you i'll pay for your legal bills I but mean, now he's president of the united states exactly exactly and so i mean so at this point look the way he wins right is just issue a new executive order or drop this thing don't go to the supreme court and risk losing and creating a constitutional crisis just issue a different order? Well, so look, if you were if you were a wise actor following the advice of your lawyers, 
you would surely at this point cut your losses, whether that means withdrawing the order and starting over or <laughs> writing a very carefully worded superseding order. I'm not sure, but you would certainly uh, go in that direction. Um, now, whether that would be enough, given the history here, um, is actually, I think there are some tricky questions, no matter how they proceed. But uh, I see no evidence that Trump is capable of that, and he can't even let the Justice Department let, make a merits decision about whether it makes sense to proceed with an appeal to the Supreme Court about this without tweeting about it himself and um, and you know sort of you know muddying himself in 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 the mechanics of that decision. And so I don't think we know how he's going to handle it at this point. Uh, nor do. Uh, you know, nor would I trust anything that the administration said on the point since they they clearly don't know how they're functioning themselves. Yeah, I do think that there is, there's one additional note that's worth making, and that is that um, their malevolent incompetence, that's the, the term that Ben has coined and I'm now seeing everywhere, which makes me very happy, um, uh, has cost the United States an unbelievable amount of money. It's cost us standing in the world. Um, it's, it's had security consequences, um, and it has thus far been for nothing, right? Um, that whether that if they had only uh, uh, taken a moment to issue a more uh, competent or careful order, um, they could have prevented all of that. Um, and that ultimately, uh, whether it looks like a big PR headache for the White House, and that's sort of fun to watch sometimes, um, the people who pay the costs for this is us, right? Um, the State Department had to reissue 60,000 visas that it had canceled. That costs money. That costs time. Um, you know, uh, our relationships with our allies, it takes time to, to uh, uh, build those back up and, and uh provide additional reassurance. There's there's consequences to that. Um, and so, you know, for all the, the deal making and we're going to get the CEO, you know, president in there, um, uh, they're wasting a ton of time, a ton of money and a ton of American credibility in the world. And, and maybe he says that, well, I'm just delivering on my campaign promises, um, but they're actually not doing what they said they were going to do. Um, and, and it should really be viewed through that lens of just you know, this is a big, giant waste. Uh, and every time you do something that um, that is incompetent and ridiculous, uh, there are consequences and they're borne by the American people. Okay, uh, let's move on to our third segment, listener questions. We got some great questions on the Facebook page this week, which we're going to take. Um, the first one, this is not an easy question. Thanks, guys, for like not giving us softballs. It's not like, how softballs. much do you love America? <laughs> how did you come to be so cool, <laughs> Where did you learn this? Uh, what should the U.S. and its allies do to stabilize Yemen? Yeesh. Uh, okay, this is the one where tomorrow should have been here. Yeah. By the way, just sent us the questions and said I can't make it, but here you go. Um, that's a great question, to which I don't know that any of us have the answer. But I will say that I think... What is striking about the current situation to me right now in Yemen, uh, if we – these reports that in the wake of the raid that uh, resulted in U.S. loss of life but also civilian casualties in Yemen, the Yemeni government has apparently said, we don't want you doing any more special operations raids 
uh, and work in the country. So there's a consequence to what maybe we did. We don't know exactly yet about what the planning was that went into this raid and whether or not it was not really up to snuff. Um, so I think we have to wait. <clears throat> but there's clearly some pushback here. Uh, and that is going to make it extremely difficult for us to conduct operation against, operations against AQAP. Uh, if there was some you know, rush on this raid or some incompetence on the part of the administration that then causes the Yemeni government to limit our ability to operate there. That does have huge implications for counterterrorism efforts because AQAP actually is trying to build bombs to put on airplanes and blow people up. Um, so g- getting that squared away seems like one thing for sure. But, uh, but you know, I'm not so sure that the previous administration had a great solution for stabilizing the situation in Yemen either. So I don't want to put too much on the Trump administration it, it for cer- not having it one. It certainly did not. And you know, Yemen has been a basket case for a long time, but it actually spun out of control under the last administration. And that, you know, that's a I don't blame the last administration for that, but it, you know, but it certainly wasn't something where you can look at the Trump administration's dysfunction and say uh, that has any responsibility for what's going on in Yemen, though it may have some responsibility for, you know, uh, the particular incident. No, I mean, look, uh, the uh, the sort of disastrous uh, raid, who exactly is responsible for that? Ultimately, it's the president and you know, buck stops here. Um, anything that undermines counter counterterrorism cooperation um, uh, or permission to conduct operation from the government that's there to the extent it, it exists, um, hugely damaging to U.S. interests, um, uh, you know, hugely damaging to security interests in the region. You know, once again, we're seeing a total lack of, of even fundamental expertise. So, uh, not only does it appear that Donald Trump potentially uh, wasn't even in the Situation Room at the time and kind of didn't really get any any briefings and uh, didn't necessarily understand the intelligence. Um, you know, we had Sean Spicer on TV, on TV talking about, um, I believe he said the Yemenese government, Yemenese. although he might have just swallowed the Yemenese, but I'm pretty sure well, that Yem- was Yemenese. Yemenese. It's, a, it's, it's kind of like Lebanese, only it's <laughs> right. Yemen. Exactly. And, uh, and I love Yemenese. The too. Hadians. Uh, right. So uh, he also, um, more egregiously, I suppose, um, noted that um, he thinks that uh, the Yemeni government um, understands the United States fight against ISIS. Well, that might be the case, but <laughs> they're not fighting ISIS in Yemen. They're fighting al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and so while during the Obama administration, there was some, you know, uh, consternation over whether or not there was sufficient sort of uh, distinction between AQ and AQAP. And right um, to to not even understand kind of the basic nuance um, and uh, paired with uh, such a volatile, complex situation. That's really disturbing in terms of whether or not it's going to be possible, you know, not not really a question of righting the ship, but sort of stopping containing the fire or um, or having some ongoing stability here um, for a president that talks a lot about uh, caring about security and caring about terrorism. Um, this is an area that they should be focused on. This is an area that sh- they should be drawing experts um, or at the absolute base, uh, you know, minimum uh, people who can identify kind of the, the basic relevant actors No, but, here. you know, but they don't care about the difference between the basic relevant actors because they want to keep everybody from Yemen out of the United States. It's, uh, it's actually consistent with painting with the kind of broad brush that they paint. You know, it's a sort of screw the whole country 
approach. Uh, no need to know who's acting there, what the difference between AQAP, the Houthis, and, and, and ISIS. Keep them all out. Well, and to that point, I mean, you know, we talked about Sebastian Gorka on the podcast recently, who is, you know, one of a senior advisor to the president. And In fact, we should only Steve talk Bannon. about Sebastian Gorka on this podcast. <laughs> you know, if you read his book, he talks about this global jihadist movement that sort of is an umbrella term that encapsulates ISIS, Al Qaeda, Hezbollah, Hamas. It kind of puts everybody together. And a lot of his critics say that is it is far too broad of a, of a brush uh, that, you know, you end up not having any solutions that are precise, and you end up sounding more conspiratorial than rational. Uh, you know, if the administration doesn't start <clears throat> drilling down into specifics about the, you know, extraordinary complexities in each of these conflicts, there are no easy answers. So, I mean, to the question of how do you stabilize Yemen, first you have to start getting smart on Yemen and having a coherent policy. Um, another question, what priorities should Congress have in seeking to manage counterterrorism under the Trump administration. It's an, it's an interesting way to put it, seeking to manage counterterrorism. Um, I don't know how much they can manage it. They can certainly have oversight of it. But what do we think, if, if we're looking at, maybe that's the right way to put it, put it, what should the Congress's priorities be in terms of Obama or Trump counterterrorism efforts? I mean, obviously, there's making sure that privacy and civil liberties are respected. Um, I would imagine at some point, congressional Republicans are going to have to go to this White House and say, hey, you know, you got to get the NSC council or the NSC staff straight. There's just a basic dysfunction that's going on here. I mean, I think Congress has to assume a role that it really has never assumed before. Um, and that's sort of, you know, the question of, you know, if personnel is policy, um, the administration has terrible policy and terrible personnel. Um, and so if ordinarily, Congress kind of stays out of that question, right? It's really mm -hmm. considered kind of, you know, up to the discretion of the president who he wants to have as his staff. And that's why the National Security Advisor is not a confirmed position. Um, in this case, especially sort of as we look at the potential, you know, Flynn Death Watch 27. Um, uh, it might be, uh, I, I think it would be very, very wise for the uh, GOP Congress to have a list uh, of acceptable names that are replacements um, uh, for Michael Flynn and, and that it really be a list of these are the only acceptable replacements. Um, and they're going to have to potentially uh, throw their weight around in a way that they haven't before um, in sort of uh, checking some of those, uh, some of the worst impulses of this administration. Um, so so I, I really think that if they're, you know, they used to take sort of a secondary role in, in counterterrorism in part because that's that's the structure of, of our constitutional system. Uh, now I think that they are going to have to uh, use all of their available tools um, in order to try and get basically some sane, rational, uh, uh, credible individuals into important counterterrorism roles um, because it's immensely consequential. It's consequential to the lives of the U.S. military, consequential to foreign interests, you know, around the world. It's... Um, uh, I think that they're going to have to step up in a, in a really big way on this one. The most important role Congress has here is oversight and oversight both of what is done, oversight over what is not done, and oversight of the management of personnel. That is, there are things that Congress is entitled to know about personnel moves that we are not necessarily entitled to know, particularly in certain agencies. And they're in a position to protect the integrity of, of agencies and agency decision making uh, and without passing any laws, you know, um, but that's a really important function that, that you know, they just need to do. 
Okay. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'm, I'm gonna. I'll share mine first because I just. I'm absolutely delighted by a photo. I assume is true. I don't know. Maybe it's fake news. Maybe it's a real photo. But uh, CNN had an excellent story on Sunday night about the 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 whirlwind of activity that went down on the patio at Mar-a-Lago um, over the weekend <clears throat> when the news came in that North Korea had test fired a ballistic missile. Uh, according to CNN's reporting, uh, Donald Trump was uh, given a mobile phone and was discussing this at a, a dinner where there's remember, there's tables and they're surrounded not just by people like from the Japanese delegation and and and, and Abe sitting to his side. But paying guests of Mar-a-Lago who were like there because it's a club, right? So people who are on the on the patio, I guess, having dinner while Trump and the Japanese delegation is there, overhearing this frantic set of discussions about North Korea. Mike Flynn and Steve Bannon rush over to the president. There are papers put in front of him. There's like papers strewn on the table. Uh, presumably sensitive conversations that are happening. Everyone has this look of panic on their face, and they're right in the middle of it. Just serene as can be, cherubic almost, is Donald Trump with his chin in his hand, thinking like, hmm, that chicken course was really good. (laughs) This is the part of the presidency he ran for, right? (laughs) If we're being charitable, look, they might have caught him in a split second where he's about to turn around and start giving out orders. But it is just- Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's what's going on. It's an amazing (laughs) photo of Trump looking absolutely serene in the middle of what is clearly just mass panic of the people around him as North Korea test fires a missile. I I love this photo. I've made it my Twitter background. It speaks to me in so many ways. Like I would comment on the substance, but I've hurled myself out of the window of the jungle studio as as soon as I heard you talk about him uh, conducting all of this in a restaurant with other patrons. So, yeah. But that is a hell of a picture. And I gather that some of CNN's reporting came from people who were just sitting in earshot. <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, unprecedented transparency. Unprecedented. Uh, great, great picture. Beautiful. Um, Susan, would you like to go next? All right, I have mine. It's pretty It's pretty disappointing. So um, a number of Brookings scholars were um, sort of impersonated on this very strange kind of fake think tank site. Um, basically, a series of like really controversial articles were written and then assigned to their bylines. Certainly, uh, they certainly did not write them. Um, and that was sort of, you know, it was a little bit of a disturbing development. So we decided, you know, hey, we should all try and uh, get Twitter accounts verified and things like that, right? Just really ensure that we have a, a control of our online identity. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. Um, and so I diligently, being the lawyer that I am, read, you know, all the criteria for verification, you know, to be, you know, uh, notable in your field and a source of authority and blah, 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 and cited by the news media, right? Just so I'm like, all right, I've got, you know, I've got like 30,000 Twitter followers. Like, I'm not nobody, right? So I, I send in my thing and they ask you to like provide links to show who you are. And I like, you know, put forward my, my best links, my news hour links and my New York Times being quoted and write all these things and you know look I didn't want to get cocky or something but I like I thought this was kind of in the bag no this morning I received notification from Twitter that I am not eligible rejected to rejected for a blue check mark that's amazing I, I think I think oh, uh, rational security listeners should start a 
verify Susan hashtag. Don't and, I do not. You know, I cannot. I cannot bring more attention to this humiliation. No, no, no. I think. I think this is a grave injustice <gasps> uh-huh. that we must remedy. You know. Um. You don't want that blue check mark anyway, because WikiLeaks is going to start putting together the do- the uh, the dossier. The dossier. Yeah, exactly. The checklock dossier. Personal I guess that's true. Anyway, I now look at all check marks. Are you check marked, Shane? I am check marked. Ugh. I, you know what? I'm, I'm like boycotting check marks <laughs> out of just like. But basic I don't have anywhere jealousy. near the amount of followers that you have. So. And you know, it's like, what yeah. do I have to do? I don't know. To get a blue check mark oh on my Twitter profile. Uh, ben, what's your object? Mysteriously, when I came into the office this morning, uh, Quinta smiled impishly at me and said, did you see what's in the kitchen? And I said, no. And she took me into the kitchen and showed me what had arrived from a mysterious source. We have no idea where it's from. It had a little note on it that says, enjoy. And it is a chocolate pentagon. Uh, a large, not shape. just the shape of the Pentagon. No, no, no. It is the Pentagon. It's like a building. The building. Yeah. Like the doors are right. Um, we don't. I can't it's a tell chocolate by looking, model of the Pentagon. I can't tell by looking at it whether it is the um, a, a chocolate cake. Um, no, I think it's like it's. A you think non- it's a solid, the, solid from chocolate cu- from touching, like from picking it up. It seems non-solid. Right. right? It's so like a, the mold. We don't know. Oh, if it's, it's hollow. I think so because oh. it's not that heavy. So. It's quite large, though. I mean, it's like it's big. The, the size of, you know, it would be a good size hat. Yeah. Um, it's like 18-inch diameter. Yeah. It's big. Um, it's so, mm-hmm. so somebody has sent, or maybe brought into Brookings, it could be one of our colleagues, it mm-hmm. could be a mysterious mm-hmm. donor, uh, a chocolate pentagon. Uh, the picture of it will be up on the Rational Security homepage if you are the source of the chocolate pentagon. Thank you very much, and uh, it will be consumed with pleasure. But maybe it is. Or, a hat. or maybe we should let somebody else take <laughs> Taste it first. <laughs> Wait, like I don't know, seven, eight days. Did it come from the Russian embassy? And then, yet, <laughs> enjoy your enjoy. chocolate. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find. Our show archive at spaghetti on the wall productions.com along with that chocolate <laughs> pentagon. Hopefully, this won't be our last podcast issue. We're not going to eat that chocolate pentagon. We're not touching that. Look, here's the reality. Right now, I'm like, I would not touch some mystery <laughs> This is the last podcast like, we'll ever I know. guarantee you it will be 930 <laughs> like a week from now. And I will be like, I really need something to eat. And I will go and I will eat that damn chocolate pentagon. Uh, and then when Susan shows up dead, we will know. When the polonium the... takes effect. Right. Uh, you could follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to read a rating and a five-star review. We would love that. We will send you a chocolate pentagon if you can leave <laughs> us a five-star review. Chocolate pentagons for everybody. We have one. A pentagon has five sides. Right. Like the number ah, of stars. The stars we want in your review of That's exactly security. right. Exactly. Who are we not brought to this week by? Um, Russell Stover's excellent, <laughs> and <laughs> Cherry's berries. <laughs> they don't make chocolate pentagons, <laughs> or the Pentagon Chocolate Store. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Mike Flynn and the Wiretaps. Cool, nice. Yeah, good it's like a metal yeah. band. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wiretaps. Just all metal now. Yeah, exactly. It's all metal. It's death yeah. metal. <laughs> Of course, our music was performed by Sophia Yan, who, if she were talking to the Russian ambassador, would A, know it, 
and B, like only discuss classical music. music. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing else. Yeah. She might send him like a coded message about sanctions in the way she played a particular song. Yeah. No, I think, I think Sophia can be, could be trusted to discuss, uh, uh, Russian music yeah. with, with you know we with should analyze the songs just to make sure there aren't any messages being sent via yeah. rational security I think we know what our next task is on behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy get well tomorrow I'm Shane Harris we will talk to you next week thanks for listening bye ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 